You're listening to audio from First Baptist Church Rockville. If you'd like to know more about our church and ministries, please visit our website at fbcrockville.com. that kind of response. That's just, I'm just saying. <laughs> You've trained them well. You set up the, you set up the dominoes for me to knock them over. All right. Uh, for our guests, thank you for joining us. I'm Pastor Robert. I'm the pastor of Families in Worship, and most of the time I do the singing. I don't do this as much as Pastor Gary. Uh, come back next week to get the full picture, um, but I am grateful every time I get to come into the pulpit. And um, for those of you who don't know, we do have these Bibles. They're available for you. If you don't have one, just look under the seat in front of you. If your neighbor has one, snatch theirs. Uh, it's okay. And we will be on page 1040 and 41 for the most part. But um, let us go ahead and pray, and we will jump in and get moving through what looks to me like a ton of notes, but I promise you it's not as much as it looks on this end. So, Father, again, thank you for this time. I just ask that in this, um, we would hear your voice. We would hear clearly what you would have for this church, for us as a body, for us as part of the church global, um, part of what you've been building for generations and generations and generations and God what you would have us do as a church until the day you return and that we would be faithful we would be a people known for our love for one another a people known for our love for this community and people around the world and God our undying commitment and love to you first and foremost and in this time, we just give it to you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, just quick introduction. Uh, who, whose life group has started yet? Ours has. All right, so spoiler alert on the first part of this. You will hear in the first... Um, I think it's in the first video of the series. Matt Chandler says something to this degree that this is the only, Philippians is the only book where uh, Paul is not trying to correct some kind of theology, theological or behavioral issue. And I kind of take issue with that a little bit, but it took me a few weeks of studying and all to kind of come to this conclusion. Um, maybe they don't have a major error doctrinally. Maybe they line up doctrinally across the board. Maybe they've got their Trinitarian theology is way worked out and they understand. Maybe they're the guys who came up with the Athanasian Creed. I don't know. Maybe they've got it all on paper worked out. But what if you read, I think you'll notice that they had probably some issue maybe with pride, maybe a little bit of issue with loving one another well, maybe a little bit of issue with unity. And put yourself in to kind of the context 
uh, if you were to go back to Acts chapter 16, and we covered this uh, a couple weeks ago, the beginnings of the church, and, one of, and the first person that Paul meets and who gets saved from Paul's ministry is this rich lady named Lydia. And imagine if you are going to this church, and she probably had a big fancy house, and probably uh, more than likely where that church met, and kind of like, hey, we're we're meeting at Lydia's church, and maybe just something like that. I don't know. I'm speculating, but um, it is curious that if you read Philippians, and maybe it's a little bit more gentle than some of the other books, but I take it that it's kind of more of a reprimand to this church he deeply loves, but has become a bit arrogant, maybe somewhat unloving, because why else would Paul continue to hammer humility, hammer on contentment, hammer on unity and suffering, unless this was kind of their issue. I, I don't think he's just like, hey, just for knowledge's sake, here's some things to know. I think he was addressing some real issues that they had and doing it in a very gentle, loving kind of way, maybe as an example, hey, as I'm being gentle with you, so I'll you be gentle with one another. So, um, and I think he kind of maybe had in mind, if you were to look at Proverbs 16, there's uh, six things, seven things uh, that God hates, and one of them is people who stir up trouble amongst brothers. So let's go ahead, and actually, I'm going to back up. I'm going to cover some ground that Pastor Gary covered last week. We're going to read, in starting in verse 27 of chapter 1, uh, just to lay some groundwork. So uh, chapter 1, verse 27 says, just one thing, as citizens of heaven... Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear, hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of their destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God, for it's been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. So this, to me, seems like a more natural place to begin, um, because what comes after, beginning in chapter 2, now you know, like Paul didn't write chapter 1 and then write down 30 verses and go, that's a good stopping point, chapter 2. That's not how he wrote it. This would have been like a letter that you wrote to somebody else. So the, the divisions were added later. So to me, this is kind of a natural point because he's undergirding this thought of unity, striving together, and he's doing it. Um, all these things that are going to come are going to supplement this idea. So if you were to look at those first few verses that we just read, you'll see this idea of suffering together, striving together, wrestling together, going forward, moving the ball forward together. Okay? So... Come to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. If then there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Okay, pause right there. So, all these ifs. If this, I don't know what that was. If this, if that, if these things, if there's any encouragement, if... Now, what Paul's not doing is going, maybe. This, isn't, this is a, uh, an exercise where he's kind of saying, you know this is true. Because this is true, and so because 
there is encouragement in Christ, because there is consolation of love, because there's fellowship in the Spirit, because of affection and mercy, do this. Because these things are true, here's how you ought to act in light of these things. It's not a, well, maybe these things are true, and if they happen to be true, then you should do. This is a definitive statement. These things are true, therefore, make my joy complete. And here's the point he's making. Make my joy complete. Because you read it, if you... If you're honest, if you're like, well, maybe you're not like me. But if I'm being honest, when I read that, I was like, make, huh? Make my joy complete. What can he mean by this? And here's, here's what I think. Um, if you were to put yourself into Paul's shoes, hey, guys, I was there. I was there when I met Lydia by the riverside. I was there. I was the one who shared the gospel. I was there in jail when I witnessed to the jailer. I was there when the uh, little slave girl gets saved. Those are the first three people who we know were part of this church. I was there, and I've been there from the beginning. I spent time with you, I was, and, and, and I want to see you grow into mature followers of Christ. Make my joy complete by becoming mature followers of Jesus Christ. And I think this statement should hold true to any pastor worth his salt. Um, something like this. I have invested my life, my time, my energy into your lives. I've invested in your spiritual well-being. I've invested in your health, into the health of this church. I'm fully invested in you as individuals and you as a collective church. If you really want to see me happy, if you really want to do something, grow together in maturity and in faith. It's a real simple, and I think any pastor worth his salt would say, yes, that's, I would love to see that happen with the church that I shepherd. Uh, if he doesn't, um, get a search committee. That's what I would say. <laughs> um, way back in 2008, 2009, when I first started my journey at Liberty University, undergrad student, uh, thought I really had some real knowledge of the Bible, kind of heady, kind of haughty. Um, uh, I come across this guy, uh, one of my professors, uh, Dr. Ben Gutierrez. Uh, he has a really cool book that I think he just wrote for our How Not to Be a Jerk class. I forget what the name of the class was, but that's really what it was like. Please don't be a jerk in ministry. Uh, he wrote this book called Living Out the Mind of Christ. Uh, living out the mind of Christ. And he has at the very beginning of this book what he calls the unity checklist. And it's kind of based off of these three things uh, about thinking the same way, having the same love, being united in one spirit. And so he's not, what Paul's not saying here, think the same way that we all have to be like pre-programmed robots. And yes, I will do all things as you have said. That's not, but this kind of idea that we are agreed upon. And as Southern Baptists, we do have a document, the Baptist faith and message and say, yes, we agree on these things, and here are the biblical reasons why we agree on these things. So thinking the same way, thinking rightly about who God is, thinking rightly about what mankind is, who we are as, as humanity, and how God has chose to save us. Uh, so not pre-programmed, and, but not some ambiguous like, hey, we're just uni unity. Uh, that's a good word. Hey, you get some unity and you get some unity. No, but we are surrounded, united around these thoughts, these things, right beliefs, also having the same love that, and we say this um, in our statement, love, love God and love, 
Okay, love God, love others. Um, he puts it this way. He puts Christ first, others next. Um, I've heard it said this way, that we are supposed to love God supremely and love others sac- sacrificially. But at the, all the same, we're supposed to think rightly. We're supposed to love in the same kind of way, united in one spirit. And here's what Dr. Guterres says here. If you want to know whether or not you're living in a spirit of unity, you have to ask yourself, if you've taken the time to get to know people outside of the time we simply meet for church, you need to take time to others in order to hear where they are in the, in the cycle of their life situations, and this will help you intelligently pray for them. You need to be thinking about how you can shoulder burdens with them because undoubtedly those same shoulders may be called upon to help you bear a burden when you are weak and hurting, united in one spirit. So this idea of unity, and this is what Paul is getting at. If you want to, if you really want to bless me, think rightly, doctrinally. Love one another, love God, love people outside the church together in the same way. Love God supremely, love others sacrificially. Be united, get to know one another, pray for one another, be involved in one another's lives, have deep, intimate relationships with one another, and then intent on one purpose, intent on one purpose. And here's a tough question that I wish I knew, and I've, uh, Miss Sue has given me some documents from way back when, and I've, I got to read through them again, but does anybody know why First Baptist Church Rockville was founded? I was hoping so. But there was a purpose. The people who founded this church had something in mind. What is, our, what is God calling this group of people to do in this area for the sake of the gospel? What was the vision in founding? Tougher question. Are we closer to fulfilling that vision than we were when this church was founded? Have we moved the ball along? Are we closer to fulfilling that vision than we were a year ago? Are we closer to fulfilling that vision than we were five years ago or 10, 20, 50, 100 years ago? Have we collectively as a church and our legacy, have we moved the ball down the field? Have we pressed the gospel? Have we pushed out into this community? Have we pushed out into the world with real lasting impact together thinking the same way, loving others sacrificially, loving God supremely, united together, intimately entwined with one another's lives? Have we done those things that have pushed the vision that founded this church, that those men and women who who began this journey, that they had? Verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So consider consider others more important. And this means, hear me now, this means that your agenda is less important 
than the guy next to you's agenda. This means that your livelihood is less important than the person sitting next to you. This means your investments, your personal time, your personal empire, your money, everything in your life is less important as far as it is to you than the person. Now, look to your left and your right and look behind in front of you. Those people are more important than you are. Man, that's, that's hard to swallow. Because we very quickly set up our own little kingdoms and we build these big walls around our kingdoms and we will open the gate and like, you can have all of this, but don't get into my kingdom. Don't get into my real world that I'm trying to protect. God's saying, no, 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 no. That's not how it should be. You should consider others more important. That means you consider yourself Everything you have, everything you are, everything you own, everything you desire, everything you've ever dreamed of as less important than the people around you. Verse 5, he says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So he's about to set up this big example, all right? You want to know what it looks like to love sacrificially, here it is. Verses 5 through 11. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Um, that attitude, adopt the same mindset, adopt the mind of Christ, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something, something to be exploited. Let me pause right there. That word form, it's not talking about an actual, like, blob of, not like Play-Doh. It's talking about being of the same essence. Who is God at his core? Jesus is God at his core. That's what it's saying. Not that there's some heavenly space blob. We're talking about who is God as a person, as a, having personhood. Who is he? And Jesus exemplifies exactly what that is at the core of his being. He did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Um, depending on your version, maybe grass, something to be clung to. What he's simply saying is he did not consider his position as God of the universe as something to cling on to as like this desperate, I've got to have this. Now think of that as we go through the next few verses. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Um, but very often I get hung up in the glory part of this. Yeah, God's going to, God the Father's going to exalt Christ that every tongue confess that he is Lord. Every knee at some point will bow before him in worship. Everybody's going to confess that this, yes, Jesus, you're the one. That's going to happen, and that's very exciting. But I tend to miss that this is the definitive example of what Christian living looks like. 
This is the definitive example of what Christian living looks like. You want to know what it looks like to be a follower of Christ? This is it. And here's the rub. This is what we're called to do. This is who we're called to be. But it's impossible. And it's how do you rectify this? Because if you go back up, he says, do nothing. Do nothing out of rivalry and vain conceit. Do nothing out of rivalry and conceit. And we don't understand even our own motives most of the time. We can't know everything that's in us, but the attitude that marks the life of a Christ follower should be one of humility and sacrifice. It's this conscious and volitional choice that I'm going to give it all away that I can't carry any of it with me. I can't take it into the next life. I don't have anything that's mine anyway. I'm going to spend it all, go bankrupt for the cause of Christ. That's the attitude. And it's more than just being nice to people. And we put such a premium as Christians on being nice. We have to remind ourselves love isn't always nice. There's nothing nice in Jesus getting hammered to a cross. There's nothing nice about that. But that's the most explicit display of love in the history of the world. Our lives should be marked by humility and sacrifice. Another thing in this, if you go back to verse um, 7, it says, instead he emptied himself. He was... He existed in the form of God. He emptied himself. Jesus never ceased to be God. I, I need to make this point. Jesus, there are some who will teach, and some very prominent teachers, who say that Jesus stopped being God and then kind of regained his divinity at his baptism. Anyone teaching that, if you ever hear that, put an X on it, don't read that person. Don't listen to that person. That is false. That is not what the Bible teaches. That is not okay. That is heresy. Jesus never stopped being God. Instead, he laid aside his prerogative as God, his divine, some of his divine rights. He chose not to use the tools at his disposal, so to speak, um, don't really have a good way of putting this except for um, my dad and I used to box in our backyard pretty consistently. Um, I don't know what we were trying to do. Maybe he's trying to toughen me up. I don't know. Uh, I do know this. I've watched my dad. This is no lie. 
uh, beat six men in a fight by himself one time, and I'm scared to death of my dad, uh, and he doesn't really have the use of his left, left arm anymore, but I'm scared of my dad. And I know in our boxing matches, and I've hit that man with everything I've had, and him just kind of grin and smile at me, you know, and he'll play around. He would act like maybe it hurt, but the man was definitely pulling his punches, always. I don't, I don't think I ever felt the brunt of what he was capable of. But he didn't not have it. He wasn't ever weaker. He didn't become less powerful because he was boxing his son. He just was like, I'm not going to use that in this instance. That's what Jesus said. I'm not going to take up. And he said it. Uh, I'm not going to lay my, I'm, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. I can t- call down thousands of angels. I can do all these things, but I'm not going to do it for the sake of people. So he left his lofty, heavenly, wrap your brains around this. God of heaven left this heavenly position. He comes to earth as a man and lived among the very people who had already turned their backs on God in their sin. He comes and lives, and he lives this life where he's amongst a sinful people. He lived poor. He lived rejected. He lived misunderstood. He was acquainted with loss, acquainted with death. We even have an instance in the Bible where his friend dies, and he weeps. He understood the human situation, and he did all of this without any taint of sin, in his life, but he was falsely accused of blasphemy. He was falsely accused of treason. He was falsely accused uh, of sedition, and he's unfairly tried. He's found guilty. Uh, He's beaten. He's whipped. He's nailed to this cross where he suffocates and dies in agony, and then is raised to life three days later, all for the purpose of breaking the curse of sin and death to restore this relationship that humanity had broken between God and humanity, opening the door for those who believe in him in repentance and faith and that they can have eternal life. He lived his life, his earthly life, to the glory of God the Father and for the benefit of humanity for your salvation. He did not take up his divine prerogative that he could have at any moment. He didn't take up his right to just say, you know what, y'all ain't worth it, and cast everyone into hell. He didn't take that right up. Instead, he chose to sacrifice it all for your sake and for mine. That is the call of the Christian life. That is the call of the Christian life. So what? We'll kind of go back through and hit some of these points. The first one, he says, do nothing out of rivalry and vain conceit. Do nothing out of rivalry and vain conceit. And the problem here is uh, it's the human heart. Um, Ava, do I have Jeremiah 17, 9? I do. This is the problem with the human heart. The heart is more deceitful than anything else. It's incurable. Who can understand it? Here's the point. Well, JV, where are you guys? Who remembers the Greek word I taught you guys Wednesday night when someone says, follow your heart? (laughs) When you hear, just follow your heart, you can respond with this. Go ahead, guys. Let's hear it. That's that's a Greek word I taught them Wednesday. Um, (laughs) Yes, follow your heart. No, your heart 
is deceitful. Your heart is wicked. Your heart will steer you off the path of righteousness. It'll take you away from God. The desires of my heart are filled with the worst kinds of things. And yours too. But... God's given us kind of a a way to check this deceitfulness and this wickedness. Psalm 139, uh, verses 23 and 24. This is is humility before God. God, I don't know what's in here. So search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. This is an acknowledgement that you are funky, that I'm funky. We got funky junk in here, and we don't even know it. How many times do we do things, and maybe in the very back of our mind, we're like, oh, this will really benefit them. You know what? I'll look good too. But no one's knowing that you're thinking that. They're just going to see this. Oh, if I help this person, if I do this thing. I mean, we, I mean it pops up all the time. Um, I have a hard time fasting. This is, this is confession time. I have a hard time fasting because I know, and I've done this, and, and the last time I took a, a lengthy fast of any time is about three days in, I'm thinking, these pants fit good. That's much better than, you know, my grandfather called it Dunlap disease where your gut Dunlapped over your belt. Um, but that's the thought I have. Oh, if I were to fast for like three weeks, I could probably lose 10, 15 pounds pretty easily, or if not more. What? Where does that come from? No. So I have a hard time with it because I have to check motivations. I have to have this prayer, God, search me and my heart. I do not want to do this so I can lose a few pounds. Now, if you want to fast to lose a few pounds, fast to lose a few pounds. But if you are searching after God, do that, but have him check your motivations. But how often do we come across these kinds of things? Um, One really practical thing, are there relationships in this church right now that, that that you have that are strained, and even just a little bit strained? What part could you play in bringing healing? And if we can't understand our own hearts and motivations, if we don't go to God humbly, say, God, what's in me that's causing this rift? What's in me that's causing this problem over here? What's in me that I'm not willing to hear instruction? What's in me that I'm not willing to, to, to own up to my own shortfallings? What's in me? God, what's in me that is causing me to stumble So that we can do nothing out of rivalry and vain conceit. So what? The second point. The Christian life should be marked by a general attitude of humility and servitude. The Christian life should be marked by a general attitude of humble servitude. And it should reflect the mind of Christ. With him as the example. And here's, does your life reflect the mind of Christ? Does your Does your life reflect, especially chapter 2, verses 6, 7, and 8? Does your life reflect that kind of humility? Does it reflect his sacrifice, his willingness to suffer for the sake, for the good and benefit of other people? 
And here's kind of a good diagnostic question. How do you view other people? How do you view other people? Any person. As someone made in the image of God, uh, here's, here's one that helps me to look at somebody, no matter what they've done, no matter what station of life they're in, no matter who they are or what I might think of them personally, I have to consider the fact that Christ died for that person. Christ gave his life for that person that may irritate me, that person that may make me want to say, ah, no, I'd rather not. That person that may just cause everything in me to go like, I don't know, you kind of nauseate me, brother, that kind of thing. Christ died for that person. And so I ask, what, what areas of your life, what areas of my life don't reflect the mind of Christ who gave it all? What areas of, of our lives don't reflect the kind of attitude that it's all on the table, nothing? I'm not going to cling to it. I'm not going to exploit what God has given me for my own sake. And finally, the, the Christian life begins by humbling yourself before a holy God. This was Psalm 139. Um, it begins here, and, and this is another hard thing for us to swallow. Realizing that no degree of good, uh, no degree of good, no matter how much, how highly we think of ourselves, will ever be good enough. Uh, if you ever watch the, um, oh, I can't remember the English guy's name, uh, the Way of the Master videos, if you ever watch those, he, this guy comes up and he um, starts talking to people, hey, do you think you're a good person? And they're like, yeah, of course I'm a good person because everybody, we all think we're pretty good. And he's like, well, um, have you, uh, do you have, and he starts going through the Ten Commandments and like he gets three into him and he's like, so you're an idolater, a murderer, and a, an adulterer at heart. And almost everybody across the board's like, well, yeah. And he's like, so if you stand on judgment day before God, are you guilty? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, hey, that's a really hard way to do this, but that's the fact, is that you can't be good enough. None of your righteousness measures up. All your striving, all the things that you do to be acceptable to God is absolutely useless unless you have humbled yourself before a holy God. It begins by humbly accepting the finished work of Jesus on your behalf, trading your unrighteousness for his righteousness by placing your faith in Christ, by repenting of your sin, turning control of your life to him alone. The Christian life begins there. Now, here's the, here's the issue. The Christian life ends there. And everything in between, that's where we live. That's who we are. We're a group of sinners saved by the grace of God. We are a group of Sinners who do not understand our own hearts and our own motivations. We're a group of sinners that God has blessed tremendously with resource, with time, with intelligence, with means. And here's where, here's where we tend to like to live. It's like, Jesus, thank you for all those things that you've done. Um, I give it all to you except this well, and this. And this, and I think of
I think it's a, it's a hard thing for us to check and realize what we're holding back and what we're clinging on to. It's a hard thing for us to put it all out there and say, yeah, these things, these things are areas in my life that I'm not willing to give up to God. These are areas in my life that I'm not willing to turn over full uh, authority to. It's like, God, you can manage all these big things and these things that are important to me. I got it. And if it starts to go haywire, I'll give you a call and see what your management team might be able to come up with, uh, help me out with. Uh, and then, you know, we'll pay you. Um, maybe we just keep Jesus on retainer uh, for when he's necessary in our lives. The Christian life, beginning by humbling ourselves before a holy God, turning it all over to him, that's where we live. It's all yours to use however you see fit. It's all yours, God, to the very last breath that I take. All of it's on the table. Wherever you want to work, however you want to move me, whatever you want me to give, whatever you want me to do, whatever. And it should be kind of scary because some people God calls to die on a beach in Ecuador. Some people God calls to go and live lives of poverty. Uh, final example, and this is the most amazing illustration I've ever heard. Um, Wyatt actually did a report on this guy a few years ago. I remember Count Zinzendorf, uh, one of my favorite guys in all of history. Um, Count Zinzendorf uh, started a group, uh, well, I don't know that he actually started, he kind of headed this group uh, during the Reformation time and it was in northern Germany, and people could just go and live because he wasn't really uh, interested in being Lutheran or being one of these big names things. And so the, the, they called themselves the Brethren, and the Moravian Brotherhood. Anyway, generations down, this guy had so inculcated this life of sacrifice and servitude for the sake of the gospel that there's a report of a group of them that could not get these slave traders to to even listen to them to come to Christ. So they sold themselves into slavery for the rest of their lives for the sake of these slave traders. They were like, look, if we're going to be bound to them, they're going to have to hear it, kind of like Paul who wrote this from prison and, you, and like Pastor Gary talked about last night. The entire guard is now saved because of this circumstance. And these guys actively, they were like, look, we can't get to them any other way. Sell ourselves into bondage. Yeah, sign me up. Uh, but that is the attitude. That is the mind of Christ. That is where we're called to live. That we do nothing out of rivalry. We do nothing out of conceit. We are marked by humility and servitude, humbling ourselves before a holy God. Let's pray. Our Father, we don't have it. I know I don't. We don't have whatever means it is in and of ourselves to live this life that you've called us to, that we can do nothing out of rivalry and conceit, that we do nothing uh, looking out for ourselves. But God, you've called us to do this thing, and we ask that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would search us right now. What are those things that we're holding on to? What are those things that we're not willing to give up for the sake of the gospel? What are those things that are hindering us from having unity in this church? What are those things that maybe as far as we go, we're holding on to that are causing a rift and division? What are those things that, that we're not looking at that we can't even see because we don't understand our own hearts? 
And Holy Spirit would work through those things, exposing them that we might, we might be a church, understanding that this, this, this church was founded for a reason. You planted us here. And what is that reason? That we would march forward in unity to accomplish the goal that you have set out for us to do. That we would be a people known throughout Rockville for our tremendous and amazing love, not just for each other, but for the people who are outside these walls and primarily for you and when they come in. Those people love, and they really love, not just a superficial, but this deep, abiding love. What are you calling us to give up for the sake of the gospel? What are those things we're clinging to that you've blessed us with that we're not willing to for the sake of the gospel? What are those things that we're hiding back? And God, would you expose us now that we might repent, that we might ask for your forgiveness, and God, that we might move forward a people humble, a people ready to serve, a people set aside, holding nothing back for the sake of the gospel. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.